Well, I see this session uh, as being on how recent changes in the, the global political economy have shaped migration and mobility in different ways, and try in the process to reflect on some of those that's been undertaken at Compass in the last 10 years that reflects that theme. And what I want to do is to um, just pick out some of the milestones in geopolitics in the last 10 to 20 years or so, uh, show how, or try to show how it played out in the shifting global migration order, and then try to tease out uh, the relationship between uh, migration and the recent wave of global protest with anti-austerity and anti-austerity <coughs> regime protest that we've seen as a kind of manifestation of that uh, shift, uh, shifting geopolitical order. So, um, looking back at some of the key, I'm not very familiar to you, geopolitical developments that relate to migration, going back to the 1990s, um, the breakup of the Soviet Union, the Balkans wars, the so-called new wars in, in Africa and elsewhere, all of which, of course, have shaped um, what has happened more recently on the geopolitical and migration scene. Then moving into the 2000s, 9-11 uh, and the so-called so uh, securitization of migration, the uh, wars in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, which uh, prompted huge uh, uh, refugee movements. And then the accession of the uh, A8 to the EU in 2004, another key moment, uh, precipitating large-scale uh, migration from Eastern Europe to Northwest Europe, while seeing at the same time constraints on uh, migration from, without, uh, from outside the, the EU. Then from 2008 onwards, as we all know, the, the uh, global finance, financial and economic crisis taking off and getting closer to the present to, from 2011 onwards, the Arab uprising turning sour in Libya and uh, Syria, generating <coughs> again the uh, movements of uh, forced movements of people and the uh, global protest that has, has swept the globe in the last few years referred to yesterday by um, Costas. Um, so, uh, people have asked whether the, the current crisis, the, the 2008, uh, hasn't ended yet, but uh, is as significant as the transformation that occurred after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I suppose the question is whether there, uh, a fundamental shift is underway or we're going to return to business as usual. On the migration uh, front, the fallout I think that the crisis has just sort of gradually become apparent. Partly because the, the crisis was initially at least in the global northwest rather than in the global south, but that, that appears to be shifting now as uh, China, uh, growth in China and uh, India appears to be faltering. But in any case, migration flows and remittances generally held up uh, in this period, although. Um, in uh, changed compositions and, and different directions and, and so on. So one way of, one story, if you like, of global transformation is that of divergent paths. 
And I don't know if you've noticed that the world's not just become globalised, it's become sort of acronymised. <laughs> um, so, um, in the 70s and 80s, we may do with the NICs, the newly industrialised countries as they were then, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, Korea, and then maybe the new, new NICs, the uh, Malaysia, Thailand, and so on. But now we have BRICS, IBSA, uh, have anyone, anyone heard of the civets? That's another grouping. Um, also, a sort of musk producing mongoose. <laughs> um, the pigs that were referred to yesterday, uh, and the latest uh, Vogue uh, acronym, the mints, the uh, Mexico, Indonesia, Nigeria, and Turkey tit to be uh, growth um, emerging, significant emerging economies. So, the acronyms, all this plethora of acronyms, tells us something. Of course, that we know already that globalisation and its effects are uneven. So, we, one way of cutting it is to have look at these various tiers of uh, country groups. We have, say, 50, 30, 50 failed uh, or fragile states. The World Bank coined this term "licus," low-income countries under strain. Uh, producing uh, refugees and other forced migrants, uh, another tier of uh, developing poor and uh, lower middle-income countries producing labour migrants, countries that are not in conflict and, and so on. The classic uh, NICs and the, are the oil, oil producers, which are, of course, destinations for labour migrants. The emerging economies, the next 11 so-called, the mints, which are both a source and destination for, uh, for migrants moving from labour export to labour import. The bigger ones, the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, again both the source and destination for, for migrants. And then finally the, the overdeveloped, the post-industrial, over-consuming countries, the OECD countries uh, that are destinations for migrants but also circulation of highly, highly skilled migrants. Of course there are anomalies in this setup. Uh, in the so Nigeria, for example, is included in uh, the OECD's recent report on fragile states, but it's also a mint country and emerging uh, powerhouse and so on. Um, so that's one story about uh, global <coughs> transformation. The other, at the same time, another narrative has uh, emerged: uh, that of convergence, uh, the great. Convergence, as Martin Wolf, he's probably the most succinct uh, articulator of this idea. The idea that um, uh, there is great convergence underway between India and China and, and the, 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 the uh, industrialised countries uh, catch up the decline of the West and the rise of the, the rest, the, the BRICS and the Six. Uh, best summed up, perhaps, by Martin Wolf in this idea of being in the grip of a great convergence. But of course, there are some doubts about whether the sustainability of this, this convergence. But there does seem little doubt that a fundamental shift in economic power, if not yet geopolitical power, has been and is taking place. And a key another kind of product or a manifestation of that is in particular the emergence and expansion of a, a global middle class. 
Of course, the caveat here is that we're talking about converging income to the national level, and of course, we all know at the subnational level, uh, uh, within countries, uh, uh, wealth distribution is highly skilled, so typically there's a super rich top, a reasonably prosperous middle, and an impoverished <coughs> bottom. So that the global uh, middle class is expanding um, should not blind us to the widening, widening uh, inequalities within countries. So how is all this playing out in the uh, migration uh, scene? And well, we, we get to see, of course, the whole picture, but we can sketch out some trends, most of which are quite well known and have been highlighted by researchers at Trumpers um, over the last uh, 10 years or so. So we're going to see, or we are seeing, continuing containment of migrants in their countries and regions of origin and externalization of migration control, as has been well researched uh, at Trumpers and uh, other institutions. The large-scale uh, asylum migration that uh, to, to northern countries at least, that um, uh, took off in the, 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 especially in the 1990s and early 2000s, is largely over this, but this contributed heavily to, to migration in, in, to northern uh, countries. We'll see, or we are seeing, continuing segmentation of the migra mi migration setup, highly skilled, temporary, family, refugee, and student migration dealt with uh, differently. We, we, we now have it well established, as Roger Wallinger mentioned in or referred to in his uh, earlier talk, um, influential diasporas uh, from the last 20 years or, or more of migration with a growing influence on, in both uh, host and, and homelands. We, we're seeing remittances increasingly drawn into uh, global financial circuits. So we see a move from um, informal systems of remittance uh, transfer, Hawala, uh, Hundi, and so on, to formal transfers, and a, and a uh, securitization of remittance futures as uh, remittances become part of uh, countries' international credit setup, so they can bet on future remittances to get credit uh, internationally. Um, we're seeing uh, continuing migration pressure despite or because of uh, development and, and globalization. And we, we are seeing, and we will see more, more movement to emerging uh, middle-income countries. Um, not just the BRICS, but other, other territories too. To. And another uh, aspect of this is an increase in reverse migration, perhaps reverse migration is the wrong term, <laughs> Um, but I mean from erstwhile uh, metropoles to former colonies. So movement of Portuguese uh, uh, to Angola and uh, Brazil, or perhaps British Asians returning or moving to India to retire or work. And this is a manifestation on the migration scene of the, the emerging uh, global dispensation. So, but looking ahead, I think, to work that could be developed, uh, an area that needs greater exploration, I think. The key features of the emerging uh, countries identified by uh, 
as bricks and uh, mints, are there large populations? The, the youngish uh, working age of uh, substantial proportions of those populations and the increasing education of those uh, population cohorts. And those demographics play out, I think, in migration, both migration and protest. So we see educated but largely jobless or underemployed youngish people appearing to be drivers of both uh, recent uh, worldwide protests and much uh, global migration. And this seems to be the case in both the so-called um, global north as much as in the so-called emerging uh, uh, countries. And I suppose this, I think this somewhat <coughs> obvious observation perhaps deserves uh, closer attention than it's received to, to, to date. For what is the relationship, if there is one, uh, be between burgeoning international migration and the recent explosion of global protest movements, movements indignados, occupy anti-austerity and anti-authoritarian protests in the global north and global south, the Arab uprising and, and the like. Well, the conventional way of pre presenting alternatives to difficult conditions has been the, the exit voice loyalty uh, uh, triumvirate proposed way back by Hirschman, right back in 1970, fight, fight or flights in the vernacular, the choice between protest on one hand, uh, a protest and resistance on one hand, and moving out and away on the other. Um, in his uh, rather simple and uh, attractive idea that he, he laid out way back then, 40 years ago or whatever, um, he, Hirschman, saw uh, exit and voice having a kind of pendulum-like or inverse relationship, so that as one increased, the other decreased. He refined this a bit later after, in the light of what was happening in, in the Soviet bloc, and of course this was a kind of Cold War idea, um, suggesting that exit and voice didn't have to be uh, in an invoice, in, in inverse relationship, but could work with each other to hasten the fall of oppressive uh, regimes. And this idea has been picked up, this old idea has been picked up um, again recently. So uh, Silvia Pedraza, for example, has taken this notion a bit further and suggested what, what I think is quite a useful uh, framework in which she identifies four possible uh, permutations of exit and voice, which I've modified a little bit here. So the first of those is ex exit impeding voice, weakening civil society by depriving it of the sort of motivated and energetic people who uh, articulate grievances. Exit uh, helping voice, augmenting voice. So those who leave can strengthen civil society in the communities they leave behind by sending resources and ideas while away, or bringing back resources, ideas, and organizational techniques on return. The, fourth, the third uh, option is exit becoming voice. So those in exile or in diaspora articulate the grievances of those remaining at home who can't express them because of repression and fear. And finally, the idea of exit and voice growing together, working in tandem, um, uh, reinforcing one another. But I think we can see all of these permutations uh, working in, in recent events, but the much-vaunted growth 
of social media, diaspora TV, radio, and so on, have made much easier the fourth uh, permutation of exit and voice working together in tandem. So think of the different transnational combinations of exit and voice in, say, the Australian Egyptian who goes to protest in Tapirate Square, the Canadian Tamil who protests in Toronto at war crimes in, in Sri Lanka, the Turkish activist in Berlin uh, organizing demonstrations in support of compatriots in, in Gezi Park in Istanbul, or in, or in addition, the British Somali who goes to fight uh, with al-Shabaab, the jihadists returning to Britain after fighting uh, in, in Syria and so on. Because it's not only liberal voices that I'm talking about, other, other voices uh, are, are connected with these sort of migratory trends too. So, in short, and perhaps to state the obvious, I think there's uh, much scope for setting analysis of international migration alongside analysis of social movements and uh, global protests and the demography of a, glo of a global uh, cohort of educated and underdeveloped, uh, underemployed, I'm sorry, uh, 20 to 30 year olds, all, all set within analysis of the shifts underway in global power structures. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nick, for that masterful uh, uh, overview. I, I've got a more modest presentation, and it started in a slightly strange way. I've been working for the last 10 years in the field of sort of cultural sociology, and I sent a paper written with a colleague, Olivia Schoenen, to Stuart Hall, who we heard tell of. Uh, Michael Keith uh, mentioned his death a couple of weeks ago, just a couple of months ago, saying, he has this paper on uh, creolization in Cape Verde and, and Louisiana, and it's all about music and resistance from below. And after 30 years of working in radical political economy, you can see I've now become a cultural sociologist and a sort of a Hallite. Uh, to which um, Stuart then responded, uh, I think my last e e ever email from him, saying, I'm not sure I'm a Polite. Um, I don't think that um, cultural studies has anything to say about the post 2008 recession. I thought it was an interesting remark and it kind of threw me. And I thought, well, you know, if the master, the inventor of uh, cultural studies is declaring its limitations, perhaps I need to go back to some of my earlier starting points. I, I looked at this um, book again that I read called The New Hells, published in 1987. And I hadn't uh, picked it up for 25 years and thought, well, maybe I should just think about how it might connect to our current uh, situation, post 208 situation, and in turn to the theme of what we're talking about in this session. And it seemed to me that that debate that I was part of at that time was all about what we call the unfree labor debate. And it was actually an attack on Marx, although <coughs> written from a Marxist position. So Marx had argued that capitalism necessarily involved free labor, and with a whole lot of other people, I'll mention some of them in a moment, 
and we argued that no, capitalism was perfectly compatible with both with a, mix, a labor of mixed statuses, free and unfree, and focusing particularly on unfree labor, we looked at the ways in which um, unfree labor became wedded or welded into the capitalist uh, project. And suggested there that one could both understand the nature of contemporary and historical capitalism and the nature of migration using some fairly classical um, uh, Marxist um, understandings, for example, the articulation of modes of production, where one mode of production, the capitalist, would meet an earlier mode of production, and the form of articulation or bridging was the way in which um, was in fact symbolized or recognized by migration flows. We also dealt with what was seen as an important way of driving the um, capitalist system forward at reduced cost, namely that the non-capitalist mode of production would reproduce labor free to the capitalist mode of production. So it would, in a sense, subsidize the series of production and distribution. The virtue of this perspective, from the point of view of our present interest in global shifts in power and so on, was this provided a structural and historical account in relation to the development of these big systems of production, consumption, and distribution. Now, of course, this is the type of sociology that is um, completely um, uh, out of fashion to the point where it more or less had died away. And just having a look at uh, that next slide, you'll see that um, for good reasons, it seems, that the, this tradition of radical political economy had collapsed under actually existing socialism, which, of course, nobody particularly finds savory. And the only example we have left is North Korea, which doesn't seem a particularly wonderful <laughs> There was a loss of interest in Marxism, it virtually collapsed. Cultural studies, cultural sociology, social constructivism, <coughs> ethnographies, all of this is just really took its place and the amount of students who now produce um, sort of bottom-up ethnographies, multi-sided and so on. It's all a, you know, a predictable you diet. I mean, when you pick up a PhD thesis, you pretty well care. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, there was, at that point, a collapse of belief in um, any alternative to neoliberalism in neo, I think it was Margaret Thatcher's Tina phrase, there is no alternative, Tina, to neoliberalism, and the neo-destruction of organized labor. Well, I thought, well, okay, so let's just see whether this total collapse is represented um, by Google <coughs> scholars. I, I, I did this thing on the Karl Marx, and up he showed, you know, he's in work in Berlin and uh, Bond and Gina and Gamma, right, in all these different fields, um, and all these citations were 171,000. Interestingly, there seems to be a bit of a pickup uh, since 
2009, but they were unable to verify his email, so, <laughs> um, which was a, a quite astonishing effectiveness on the part of uh, on the part of Google Scholar. So there's something happening, some sort of creep of interest in the old man and what he might have thought about him. Whether we are getting some sort of revival of the radical political economy. So just to go back then, to back to the future, to the back of it, and to create some little provenance. I've written the New Helots, almost simultaneously, um, a very good book by, Mar by Robert Miles um, was produced called Capitalism and Free Labour, Anomaly or Necessity, making much the same argument that really it was necessity rather than anomaly as Marx had surmised. And in an in-between period, a, a, a book on the unprotected worker, as it was described by uh, Jeffrey Harrod. And you'll see that one of, our, one of the problems in this debate is the attempt to try and find a word that captures, um, which I will now describe in a number of near synonyms, the unfree labor, the semi-free labor, the helot, the word that I fixed on, uh, which comes from ancient Sparta, neither slave nor free, some intermediate category, the marginalized mass, the underclass. Um, over the years, all these words have spun for a year or two and then collapsed. And uh, I toyed with one called the petentariat at one point. I mean, there were all sorts, of, all sorts of attempts to try and capture that. And a number of people who wrote, I think, very powerful and important books, one which I think is systematically underread and should be read much more, is this uh, very good book by Tom Brass on the comparative political economy of, of unfree labor. And of course, a classic account of indentured um, workers by um, Hugh Tinker, the late Hugh Tinker, uh, looking at Indian labor abroad. That quote, a new, a new system of slavery, is actually um, not his. It was actually articulated in the House of Commons at the time by a parliamentarian. So this, this indentured labor looks like a new system of slavery. But just to resist this word slavery, which has become reused and reworked over and over again, uh, you know, people who are trafficked are called slaves. People who work on agricultural farms in in Lincoln are called slaves or near slaves, and the word has become, in a sense, almost degraded. The point about that, a slave is that that person is owned, is possessed, is property, can be bequeathed and inherited, the status is passed on to children, and so on. So I resist this overinflation of slave as a word, and prefer very much to try and find that category between free and slave, which Lucy declared is unfree. Well, there were obvious limits to that debate. Women were there, but they were much too narrowly considered. And they tended to appear in the sphere of reproduction as people who therefore were, as were subsidizing production, and they didn't actually appear as actors in their own right. And you'll see the image who are miners in South Africa, I think was very much part and parcel of my consciousness and consciousness of people like Harold Walby who were using that, um, these kinds of arguments. We, we saw the uh, mining companies deploying all male migrant migration subsidized from female reproduction back in the reserves or these apartheid bunches that were invented. 
the front stage actors of migrants, or sometimes the indigenous who had been suppressed as capitalist countries, in, in, as, as mercantile capitalism in particular, and probe um, areas of the world like Mexico and um, the Caribbean, Brazil, the, and so on. Uh, often these indigenous workers resisted being subordinated to capitalist rhythms of control. Sometimes they were simply wiped out by disease and so on. You remember that Mexico lost nearly nine and a half million people, a rather important um, fact that people often um, forget uh, from expect European disease. There was insufficient recognition uh, of movement of people and so on, and insufficient agency in the part of uh, the structural account was a bit too powerful. The other correctives that were necessary, and I'll just put up two little uh, examples here, were that you needed to have much greater attention to women as migrants and actors in their own right. And one important corrective, um, just picked out two books by people at this conference, uh, one by Richard Anderson, looking at domestic labor. And one also needed some greater kind of uh, equi uh, equal time given to the movement of capital as well as the movement of labor. Uh, I think Suskia's uh, important book on uh, flows and mobility of labor and capital, which more or less uh, makes these equivalent and relational, um, I think was an important corrective to the earlier emphasis on unfree labor. But what now uh, in terms of our vocabulary? Well, we've got a new word that's now entered our, uh, uh, as it were, our working, and we now have to sort of deal with, which is to say the precariat, something between pre precariousness or precarity and the proletariat, um, which has been developed by Guy Standing uh, in particular. And that's a rather long and um, extract from um, his own work. But I think what I want to draw from it is this. He was able, I think, to say that what is happening at that international level is getting migrants who are part of that marginalized mass, we, who we've already identified, you know, in terms of indentured laborers, other subordinated forms of labor that are crossing borders, but also that capitalism had reached such a stage of um, uh, sort of of brutality of neoliberal failures, that indigenous people were being pushed into the status of the, of, of, of the marginalized mass. So the precariat then is now international and national. Okay? And that really is the difference between what is described now as the precariat and what we were all earlier um, using in that term, uh, under the term of the unfree labor. So, how would we then want to try and um, uh, conclude this? And that, what I would suggest is that we end up very simply, very crudely, with three groups, three classes, if you want to call them that. Marx, of course, had the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. That's no good from our point of view. I think what we've got at the top of the structure, and, and we'll hear a lot more from John Owen in a moment about this, is if you are writing a paper on this, a book on this indeed, is a group that has escaped the nation state. 
They're super rich, super mobile. We can call them supranational uh, elite. They basically are completely uh, uncontrollable. They have so much in the way of resources that no state can touch them. They've got multiple residences. They're multiply mobile. They're a very small portion of the population, but they're extremely powerful in terms of their influence. And then we have those people who are still locked in to the state. They're state-centered. That's the second group. And they have a high degree of variability. I think that came out in Nick's presentation. But the characteristic of them is that they still are locked into a national state structure. They are maybe citizens, or may not be fully citizens, but they pay tax. And they're the little people who pay tax um, from the point of view of the, um, the supranational they're all the people in this room, presumably. And then at the bottom, there is the precariat, who basically fall out of any protection by the state. They are international, they are national, they are unable to uh, really um, uh, you know, uh, gain any protection. So the British Trump survey, uh, which I alluded to briefly there, um, actually has seven groups, but I won't go into that. Is that if you take about the, those three broad groups at a global level, I think it might give us a quite an interesting hypothesis. Well, standing argues, perhaps somewhat, you know, implausibly, that the precariat is a dangerous class. And we've heard this for a long, long time. This is a dangerous class, that's a dangerous class. And Richard Cobb, once uh, a great uh, scholar of the French Revolution, said that uh, recently people who are in these categories of social bandits or peasants or looking proletariat have been elevated into the uh, senior common rooms, but this eleva elevation is, is a bit too premature. They're much more complicated than all that. They're not really these revolutionaries. They don't really reach, reach these revolutionary heights that is often deemed, um, by, by, to, to, deemed to be possible by academics. Instead, what they seem to be is a bit like Marx talked of the Lumpen proletariat. You remember Marx and Engels in the manifesto said, from time to time, the Lumpen proletariat are drawn into the proletarian struggle, but their conditions of life uh, befit them more to be bright tools of reactionary intrigue. So I'll end with that note, slightly pessimistic note, that perhaps this precariat will remain in that precarious state. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me to your uh, birthday party. I'm um, very pleased to be here. And um, I, I suppose what I want to do is to uh, add some uh, detail to the kinds of uh, analysis, particularly, that we've heard in the previous two talks. And I want to say a little bit about what I call, what my colleagues and I now call the new mobilities, a paradigm for social science research. And then, in a, in a kind of way, apply that to uh, the development and expansion and proliferation of what I call offshore worlds. But I want to begin in 1840. And 1840 is when I think the modern mobile world uh, uh, was initiated. And it was initiated because of the ways in which 
uh, an extraordinary number of new systems, what I call new socio-technical systems, came into being more or less at the same time and uh, sort of constituted ways of uh, being moved, organising movement through uh, Thomas Cook, uh, capturing movement through uh, photography, uh, sending posts through the new uh, uh, postal system, uh, reading guidebooks, uh, Baedeker's guidebook, and, uh, and especially, interesting, I think, uh, looking up at the times, the timetable, Bradshaw's timetable, 1839. There's an astonishing array of uh, sort of systems get generated and re and the most important one is they reinforce each other. They, they're uh, clustering. And uh, that sort of moment, 1840, uh, I think is interesting and has led or stimulated me and others to think about the significance of uh, the ways in which uh, movements are interdependent. So when we, we talk of the movement of the migrant or the tourist or the uh, overseas students, uh, they uh, deploy a number of different, there are a number of different forms of movement that cohere, or we would say, I guess these days are assembled as an assemblage of uh, multiple mobilities, physical movements uh, of people, physical movements of objects, in that what I call an imaginative travel, uh, virtual travel, and communications. And they come together and they, they get assembled to make possible uh, various kinds of movement. And indeed, in the journal, either for mobilities, we've often had uh, reports and studies and analyses of different kinds of migration movement, which sort of uh, use these uh, ideas in certain ways. One of the consequences of all of that is, of course, that there are massive inequalities in the forms of movement. And I like uh, Zygmunt Bauman's uh, quote, which I think is a kind of an interesting empirical claim that mobility says climbs to the rank of uppermost among coveted values. The freedom to move, or of course the freedom not to move in cases, is a scarce and unequally distributed commodity. Comes, he says, the main stratifying factor uh, in contemporary societies. And uh, I've uh, tried to elaborate that a bit by thinking about uh, a kind of a, an, another form of capital to sit alongside, uh, say, economic and uh, cultural capital, what I call network capital. And as you will see from that list, you can read it, uh, it's quite sort of material. There's a lot of materialities uh, which are involved in and, and permit and facilitate uh, high or high levels of network capital, uh, such as documents, other people, uh, movement capacities, information, communication devices, uh, meeting places, which uh, came up in one of the papers uh, earlier on, so that's very important, feature, access, and time and resources to manage and coordinate those when things go wrong. Uh, and of course they do go wrong from time to time. We get to, uh, disrupted mobilities. So those are some sort of ideas which are quite captured. The significance of mobilities 
and the significance of massive inequalities in those mobilities. And obviously most of us here are sort of, you know, high up on most of those, but not kind of right at the top, I guess, uh, of all of those are forms of uh, uh, those constituents of what makes high network capital. I now want to turn to, uh, I, I talked about 1840, but I now want to turn to 1990, uh, which featured again one of the uh, previous talks just now. Um, and I have a different, slightly different list of 1990. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is better than yours. <laughs> um, and you can see from that, uh, so communism, uh, global news reporting in the first uh, Gulf War, very important, I think, uh, online uh, financial trading, uh, much greater speed and volatility of uh, funds and the other markets, uh, the invention of the web, uh, the proliferation of countless virtual worlds, which I'm going to come back to in a minute, and various sorts of new business models. Uh, particularly related to new uh, forms of transport, particularly the, the budget uh, airlines and the smashing of uh, unions uh, that presupposed. Uh, and uh, also in that list, there should also have been the, uh, the initiation of systems of mobile communications. Which are very <laughs> and that moment, 1990, is, is interesting. There's a whole uh, proliferation of books come from that moment, which uh, promote, to, to document, promote, and seek to spread notions of borderlessness. There's a famous book by uh, Kenechi Omai called uh, Borderlessness, and uh, he described and advocated the free flow of ideas, individuals, investments, and industries. The emergence of an interlinked economy erode good to have the erosion of national sovereignty, the power of information, and so on. And it was thought by him and many other figures at the time uh, that this would engender boundless economic, social growth, new businesses, international friendship, family lives, distance, etc., etc. And uh, I guess uh, quite a lot of many of you in the room will have either contributed to or be familiar with. Uh, many studies of new kinds of uh, movements uh, that were discussed and analysed, and often that led to an interest in ideas of cosmopolitanism uh, and so on, which again was mentioned uh, yesterday. Also, the critiques by feminist writers of the sort of masculinist uh, uh, borderlessness and so on. So, this was a sort of 1990s uh, borderlessness. Uh, uh, Joseph Stieglitz talks about the, the roaring 1990s and so on. Uh, but uh, one of the things that was not sufficiently noticed was what I am going to turn to, and that is the significance of offshoring. Uh, because moving across borders, we now know, are not just the sorts of things that uh, Omai uh, celebrated, uh, but also consumer goods, experiences, and personal services, but also many bad sort of risks, environmental risks, terrorism, trafficked women, uh, drug runners, criminals, and uh, others that have interest me, particularly oil spills, untaxed income, uh, property speculators, financial risks, 
hurricanes and other extreme weather events which have uh, struck the southeast of England, struck the south of England. But in general, what has come into being, we might say, is a sort of general offshore world reaching into most societies, restructuring global power and domination. And that's why it's something central to this central issue in this uh, session that we're now in the middle of. And if we were to analyse offshoring, we should examine the moving of resources, practices, peoples and monies from one territory to another, and how, as they move, they are partially hidden from view of the public and or public authorities. And offshoring is almost always necessitates various kinds of rule breaking. There's the getting around rules that are in ways that are literally illegal, such as tax evasion. There's the getting around the spirit of the law, even if what is done is legal. There's the use of laws in one jurisdiction that undermine laws operating in another. And uh, offshoring thus is rule break, involves rule breaking, irresponsibility, and secrets and lies. And this characterises many different domains. Uh, and in the book that I'm going to publish called Offshoring, uh, has uh, documents the, the, the processes of offshoring of work, waste, e-waste, uh, energy, torture, CO2 emissions, and especially uh, taxation. And I'm going to now mainly talk about taxation, which follows, yeah, which follows uh, from the last book. And uh, in order to examine the offshoring practices, what one has to do is to look at the intersection between uh, many different sorts of systems. Again, analogous to <coughs> my arguments about the 1840, 1840 or 1990. And those have made possible, in any way, made possible secrets and lies on a sort of industrial scale which is what I'm trying to uh, convey here. Uh, part of that is the significance of virtual environments, and this obviously links to the question of remittances and so on, uh, many ways in which many different things can be moved digitally as well as physically, kind of out of sight and often along secret routeways. And so virtual environments are part and parcel of these processes of of offshoring and hence of delocalizing. This is all related to issues about um, uh, kind of carbon costs of all of this, the delocalizing of production, consumption, sociability, and politics. Characterized the last few years, last few decades, and symbolized, I think, by the city of the state of Dubai which, uh, as you may know, has the world's highest building, the uh, ski resort in the desert, uh, the world's only seven-star hotel, uh, uh, huge, <laughs> yeah, the world's largest hotel. It's rumoured to have the world's largest ever party. And uh, it's, it has built these extraordinary um, uh, be uh, new constructions in the sea to extend the beach. Kind of. And of course, it is one of the world's most significant tax havens, uh, as well as a place of leisure and pleasure. So, kind of Dubai for me kind of 
symbolizes the sort of new neoliberal world order. And of course, it's only been built by all of those uh, workers from Pakistan and India. Uh, so just as the tourists fly in, so most of the workers fly in and out as well. In all of that process, uh, there is astonishing scale of offshore money. Uh, of course, it's needed a kind of complicated estimate, so I'm going to the details, but uh, uh, I think the, the fantastic book by Nicholas Jackson on, uh, describes how the world of power now works. It works through offshore. And uh, as you can see, the scale of money which is said to be re reside in offshore accounts is thought to be something like 21 trillion. That's a, 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 a cautious estimate, which is equivalent to about one third of uh, world GDP, which is 64 or so uh, uh, trillion US trillion dollars. So that's a, a phenomenal scale, and uh, almost all major companies, almost all high net worth individuals are, have such accounts, and uh, uh, their monies in some sense flow through them, and this is simply uh, a mundane way in which uh, money is organized, uh, income and wealth are organized. Uh, almost all, all major uh, financial uh, entities uh, house money in the 60 to 70 tax havens. Well, the 200 odd countries in the world, 60 or 70, um, are, tax, are in some sense tax havens, very disputed term, which includes, uh, of course, uh, Switzerland and London and Delaware and the most many of the Caribbean islands and of course uh, uh, Macau and uh, Singapore, Dubai, and so on. So what is a good tax haven? It has a good facade. And I think that the, the importance there of the facade that is a kind of assemblage of both things that are highly stable, and of course Switzerland that's the kind of classic example of that, but it also facilitates mobility, which also Switzerland does particularly well. Um, so it's a place for business, everyone trusts that money is safe, companies can be formed and reformed and so on. But also that money can move in and out safely, people can move in and out safely. One has great transport links and systems, that's uh, Switzerland. Um, uh, necessitates really secure communications and good transportation systems. And offshore tax havens, uh, in fact, you can see many, many examples if you go onto websites and so on where, where the characteristics of particular tax havens are described. I won't go through these, but you can see the sort of things that are, are <coughs> deemed to make a good tax haven, um, uh, including not transferring information. They're kind of, and of course, so again, many are kind of experts in secrecy. Sort of the world is built around uh, such uh, secret uh, arrangements. Um, but, of course, none of this is uncontested and nicely related to the whole argument about existence, which we were discussing yesterday. There is indeed a fantastically significant new politics of tax and of the deficiencies and limitations and the unjustifiability of uh, the many of these offshore arrangements. 
and there are an astonishing array of interesting and important critical reports, obviously many kinds of uh, dramatic and theatrical protests by U UK Uncut and many other organisations. So in a way, tax, which used to be seen, interestingly, as a private matter, only for you and your accountant, uh, now has become a public matter. It's now on the agenda, and uh, you will know. You will know that uh, these are uh, now very much uh, widely disputed. This this has captured some of the array of other uh, forms of offshoring, and in offshoring, I think there's a fantastic significance of the sea, and I don't think there's enough social science of the sea of watery worlds. After all, three quarters of the Earth's surface is water, and yet we resolutely concentrate on what happens on land. And uh, I think the analysis offshoring brings out uh, the significance and the importance of water worlds, pirate sea and the power of the sea. And uh, this is where, in particularly, many rules and regulations are evaded. Uh, oceans are literally and metaphorically over the horizon. And uh, I very much like this quote from Langevishi uh, on the outlook sea. Our world is an ocean world and it is wild. Uh, the, the outlaw sea is what unregulated neoliberal capitalism is like, uh, constructing a kind of free market sea. And there are many examples of that, of course. Unregulated ships, unregulated oceans, and unregulated climates that impact back uh, onto life on land and again the, uh, the uh, an astonishing array of extreme weather events is kind of the power of the sea the watery worlds coming back impacting on uh, life on life on, on. I, I, I will probably just stop thus with this quote that I, I was going to say a little bit more about the uh, significance and importance of movements of reshoring uh, kind of there's a sort of reassuring movement now, but I haven't really got time, so I'll just end with this bleak quote <laughs> <laughs> from uh, William the Fortan uh, Kaplan, where he characterises these offshore worlds as the negative dark spirit pervading the offshore worlds as network of secret paraphernalia and hidden practices that so closely bound up into the